0: This is episode number 403 with Mike Rowe. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin
1: your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpresscom slash business gold card
2: whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at ashley The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
0: to the School of Greatness podcast. So excited you're here. This is a channel for those that want to learn how to take their business, life, health and relationships to the next level. If you're looking to be a peak performer in life, then you've come to the right place and today we've got an incredible human being on. His name is Mike row. Now, I was just up in San Francisco giving a speech to a corporation up there for one of their day-long events they were doing. They brought me in to speak, and I got a chance to connect with Mike because he lives in San Francisco as well. So I went to his studio, and we sat down to what I thought was going to be an hour interview, which ended up being over a two-hour interview. So this is actually part one of two. Um, the next episode that comes out will be the second half of this. We just kept diving in deeper and deeper. I mean, the insights I was learning, I just didn't want to stop. So we continued. This was one of my favorite uh, interviews in his studio. We've got his dog who makes an appearance in the, uh, in the interview as well. So you'll hear from his dog. And for those that don't know who Mike Rowe is, he's a TV host, a writer, a narrator, probably one of the best narrators, a producer, an actor, and a spokesman. He was the host of the popular TV show, Dirty Jobs. He's appeared on shows like Good Morning America, Larry King Live, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Oprah, The Tonight Show, and many others. And Mike's most recent show, Somebody's Gotta Do It, debuted in 2014 on CNN. And today, Mike runs the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, which awards scholarships to students pursuing a career in the skilled trades. He's also the host of the popular podcast, which is one of the top 20 in the world right now called The Way I Heard It. And he is also on the Forbes list for the top 10 most trustworthy celebrities. And in this part one, we talk about the stories of people Mike met on Dirty Jobs that really shifted his perspective about life. Why working smart, not hard is actually extremely bad advice. We get to listen to Mike sing a little opera from his early days as an opera singer. He brings it back on this episode. We talk about why having passion for something doesn't guarantee you'll actually be good at it, and why people with dirty jobs tend to be happier than most people who are doing anything else. That and so much more in this first half with the one, the only Mike Rowe. Welcome everyone back to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited about our guest, Mike Rowe, in the house. Good to see you, man.
1: Nice to see you. Thank you for coming by yeah, my your
0: uh, house. Actually,
1: it's kind of like my make believe office here in San Francisco. Most of the uh, I'm when I'm in town, I'm usually on the other side of that glass, right? Telling stories of the uh, of the vast Bering Sea
0: or whatever <laughs> they put in front of me. I like it. You are uh, have an incredible career history. Started out as an opera singer, is that correct? Or early on, you were you know the the, the,
1: world. the the trick in your question is start it off, and it's funny. You know, the older you get, you, the more you tend to look back, mm-hmm. and the more you look back, the more you realize that the place where you started is not really the place where you thought you started. <laughs> sure, sure, right? Where did you really start? I, I honestly, I mean, right now, today, at this point in my life, I would say, um, I would say that my career started when I was seventeen, and was failing out of uh shop classes i very much wanted to follow in my granddad's footsteps failing out of them right i didn't get every people who see dirty jobs figure i'm like bob vila or like right. joe handy i'm not that's a um, that's a recessive gene
0: sure right and, <laughs>
1: and my grandfather who got it in spades was sort of uh an, an idol of mine growing up so i very much wanted to do what he could do which essentially was build a house without a blueprint Right, Ooh, that's impressive. Well, he, he only went to the seventh grade, but he had the uh, the chip, you know, that mm-hmm. some guys have in the back of their brains that allows them to take a watch apart or a combustion engine, it's amazing, and put it back together. He never once read the instructions to anything. He only went you to the seventh grade. He just saw it, right? Yeah. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a car or a house or or a watch. It it was just simply a thing to be to be taken apart and put back together, and I just always assumed that's what i would do and i and i just didn't get the gene mm. and and
0: yeah but I, you appreciated the gene you appreciated the work I, the artistry
1: i came to yeah i mean i i, I think i always had an appreciate, i had a fascination for it and then when i got so frustrated that i couldn't do it, <laughs> it it was my pop who said you know what you can be a tradesman if you want you just need a different toolbox so mm. that's when i I enrolled at a community college after high school, and I started studying things I had no interest in, which turned out to be the precise career I have today so it was you know <laughs> it, and 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 the opera was a part of that mm. I had zero interest in singing, performing, or much less dressing up like a pirate or a viking you know but but you had interest in girls I did
0: and that attracted and the girls I, and or are, i do to be clear <laughs> of course yes it a not
1: it, 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 it wasn't a passing <laughs> experimental phase sure, I'm, sure um but yeah yeah you know the the baltimore opera in 1985 or mm. four for wow. me i was born in 83 well good for you
0: <laughs> <laughs> not to date you but yeah <laughs> good for you
1: um well i was i was just out of high school actually just just out of college and and i wanted to uh you know, I wanted to get in television. I wanted to get in. Why did you want to be in television? Well, because it looked at that point like something um, that would actually generate money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I check the one ads every day, and there's no listings for TV stars or reality stars, <laughs> no listing for movie stars, yeah. no listing for po- right. So
0: get famous here,
1: right? So how do you do this? You know, you're 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 24. You're living in Baltimore, and back in those days, the unions, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh-huh. They were kind of closed in the sense that, you know, to be in the Screen Actors Guild, you had to have done uh, Screen Actors Guild work. But you can't do Screen Actors <laughs> Guild work. The... <laughs> it's a... So there was this endless yeah. catch-22 of a tautology, you know, and I and I, I finally learned that this union called AGMA that governed um, the opera was a sister union to SAG. So if you could get your union card over here in AGMA, you could just pay your dues over here, and poof, you're a TV star. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so i I learned an audition. I I basically memorized a short aria. I crashed an audition. I got into the opera, mm. and I stayed because the music turned out to be way, way more interesting than I thought. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, and it was a world class orchestra, and they're playing the hell out of Verdi and 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 Puccini and and all the greats, you know, uh, and the girls. I mean, they're just they are all dressed up
0: like these French courtesans and and, and <laughs> there's something about a girl who can sing well that is so attractive It's the artist mind. well, it's the artist thing
1: yeah you know it's and, and it it's and, and it's a passion thing yeah you know so the the Baltimore Opera was right next to the Peabody Institute and so a lot of co-eds came out of that um, right. you know that uh, curricula and um, and and it was funny because there were 80 people in the in the rep company and uh 45 women and 35 mm. guys and uh of the 35 guys you know 30 had zero interest in 100 percent of the women and of the remaining five guys uh who were straight uh three were married mm. and the other one you know had a mole on his eyelid the size of my thumb <laughs> with you were set <laughs> thick black hair you were set so yeah I mean, it, it just turned out it was just A wonderful time to be me in Baltimore uh, singing at the top of my lungs.
0: What is it about men that are so driven to do things based on where women are? I
1: think I'm not a social anthropologist uh, uh, nor a uh, historian, but as far back in time as I'm able to calculate,
0: so it has been. Why is our brain so wired that way, you think? It's like we will do the craziest things. In my experience, that, that we is, don't even love. It ain't
1: the brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, look, I, I I think that you know men men and women take um take meaning mm. uh from from different things. Yeah. And obviously, this is controversial. Uh, but just in a very, very, very general way, there is something in the reptilian part of our brain that wants to um that wants to fix things, right? right? And and you know, regarding my grandfather again, mm. that manifested in a very hands-on, very obvious way. But I think there are other less obvious ways. Yeah. You know, we want to yeah. we want to save you. You know, we, right. we we want to have an impact and we want to improve sure. whatever situation we're in. So we make a bigger fire. You know, come back with a bigger carcass. Right. You know, feed the girl. Build a bigger train house. The kid, bigger house, bigger, right. and and that's just you know, that that thumb. Has been in the small of our back <laughs> since we had tails. That's true, and it's pushed us forward ever since. It's crazy,
0: yeah, man. So, do you still sing today?
1: In the shower, weddings, and funerals. Can you sing a little something or no? I, you do what, what? What genre would you prefer? Opera. Well, I'll t- the the aria that attracted my attention initially mm. uh, only got me because it was the shortest thing there was, right? And it was a uh, it was Puccini. It was from uh, it was from La Boheme, and it was the coat aria. And and really, the funny thing about it is when I when I memorized it, you know, the the Walkman was around. Sure. You won't remember.
0: No, the I remember the Walkman. No, you don't remember early the Walkman. On. I was born you know, in nineteen eighty three, Mike. I don't like know or about or the Walkman. Yeah, yeah.
1: The Walkman. Late
0: eighties, of course.
1: I, I I got the record from the library and I put it on a on a cassette player. Mm-hmm. And in the Walkman, I listened to these sounds just walking around Baltimore. Yeah of Pianto no idea what it meant but I just listened to it until it got burned in my brain and the melody il so I'm like just walking around but i I can't hear myself because I got the headphones on I must have I'm insane right I'm walking through Baltimore City I must have sounded like a, a truly insane person mm-hmm. but I got it more or less in my head and then I went to the audition and the chorus master was like I got to tell you that was that was that was terrible I, oh, really <laughs> well he didn't say terrible but he said you have no idea what you're singing about do you yeah and I said no I don't and he said um why are you here and uh you didn't want to tell him the real truth which was the girl <laughs> but I did well no the real truth was the union card uh-huh. I sure, said sure. look yeah. I said I just told when I said hello I, <laughs> I said this to guy his name was Bill Yannutzi. He was uh, the guy who auditioned me. And I said, Mr. Yannutzi, when I told you hello, I told you all I know about opera. And he laughed. And he said, well, then, why are you here? And I said, because I'm curious and I would like to know more about opera. And I would also like to get my AGMA card so I can buy my SAG card and then maybe get hired to do something that makes some money. Hmm. And he literally, he, he gave me the slow clap. And he said, you have a pleasing voice. You have a low register which we're looking for. Right. You're young, which is a huge advantage.
0: We can train you. We can coach on, you. On the downside, he said,
1: you, you suck. <laughs> you, you don't know your ass from a hot rock. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> and seven years later, to be honest, I didn't get much better. But mm-hmm. I had a ball. And, and I did. I, it's, it's amazing what you'll learn by accident when you jump into another language mm-hmm. or when you jump into uh, art
0: in general. Yeah. I uh, started salsa dancing about 10 years ago. I lived above, after I got injured, uh, I was living above a a jazz club that my brother's uh, the top jazz violinist in the world. And he knew this woman who owned this jazz club in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And there was a one-bedroom loft. That was, you, I'm sorry. What's your brother's name? It's Christian House. He's a top... He played with Les Paul for yeah, 10 yeah, years. Yeah. And
1: so who's the other guy that gets all the press now with the violin bell? Joshua Bell. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is he he's a jazz guy
0: or a classical, classical guy? No, no, he's classical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's a he's a jazz guy, but uh, uh, understated uh, industry. Not many people listen to jazz anymore, but he's... Or, or, he, or jazz violin. And jazz violin is very unique, yes. So he said, you know, here, 250 bucks a month, she'll let you crash up there. And so I was living on here for 250 bucks a month, looking over downtown Columbus The Columbus Music Hall. And once a week, Wednesday nights, they would have put a dance floor down, downstairs, and bring the salsa band. And I would go and watch, because I had all this free time on my hand, one hand. And I would go down and watch, and was just fascinated by all the Latinos who were out dancing. And these guys were so amazing.
1: Well, look, that's, I mean, I think, from what I've seen in the world, that's the epitome of masculinity. Mm. It's a Latin man dancing. Right? There you go. Because... Because I think for me anyway the the most interesting men uh, do well they're complicated they they're not they're, they're not the caricature okay. of you know the chisel jaw Manly. dude there's always something else going on and if there's something artistic or, or something obviously dance is amazing right uh, but yeah to for me it was the opera yeah. you know the the first time I got a look, at something that I did not I had never associated. I mean, in spite of the story I just told you, the 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 fortitude and the constitution that you find in men who are who have dedicated their life to singing the grand opera, I put it right up there with the best trained athletes in Mm, the world. Absolutely. You you can't get sick. There's no sick. And if you do get sick you're screwed. You you sing through it. Mm. I've seen guys go on stage with fevers who can barely talk they're so hoarse but when they sing they just use a different part of their palate they use a different part of their brain they
0: break through it's,
1: it's extraordinary
0: and I, then they go back and they're like asleep for 24 hours yep. like <laughs> yep. in medicine yeah
1: I've also seen guys there was a he's still around and he we don't know each other but but James Morris is is sort of the, the, the bass baritone version of Pavarotti mm-hmm. and um, and that guy I, we only met once briefly but I knew a lot of people who knew him well he was a legend. He was a le- the guy smoked Marlboro Reds, mm. two three packs a day, drank scotch <laughs> right out of the bottle, and then walked on stage and sang with such beauty and such. Uh, it was ex- it's just extraordinary, and and it it made no sense no sense to my brain at all. Except there was no denying it. The guy he he was doing what he was born to do, and all the other stuff. It just, it just didn't matter.
0: It's like the athletes that just drink the night before the game and party constantly, but they go out and they perform like yeah. gods, yep. you know?
1: Yeah. It's crazy. I hate those
0: guys. I hate it, too. <laughs> I never, I've never, i never been drunk in my life uh-huh. because I never had the skills or the the talent that those guys had, and I was like, I need every advantage as an athlete to yeah. perform on the field. Every little... <laughs> thing i can do so i've right. never been drunk because i committed in college to not not doing
1: it you're not missing much
0: obviously. yeah i never really feel like i am i you know i have a sips here and there but i've never like right drunk you know yeah. been drunk um what is the biggest lesson you've learned from opera that you've applied to your life that you didn't know before opera um
1: well it's a version of the first lesson that i learned in hindsight that turned out to be important and that was um it was it was run toward the thing that makes you uncomfortable, and and I actually learned it in the in the Boy Scouts of all places. Mm. You know, the big lesson, for, in my view, um, that every successful person eventually learns, uh, and you could learn it young, you can learn it old, you could forget it and relearn it, mm-hmm. but it's this, it's the idea of confronting a thing that makes you uncomfortable, and then getting good at it. But then there's a third thing that most people don't do, which is find a way to love it. Mm-hmm. So that's it. You know, I mean, f- for me, I've, I've always been very, very suspicious of the idea that following your passion will take you to the, to the desired result. Mm-hmm. And there are so many books, and I've seen so many interviews, on podcasts in particular, right? Everybody's sure. telling about, L- here's the secret. Here's what you need to know. It starts with you identifying what it is that's going to satisfy that that's within you. And here's how you're going to get there. And so all the things, all the steps that typically get laid out as a plan so often become barriers Mm. to the very thing that you want to achieve. And it's all starting with, in my view, a very dangerous question, which is, what are you passionate about? Right? So, you know, The thing I was most passionate about, I just happened to be...
0: Well, it's a workshop, essentially, right?
1: Well, I I was ill-equipped.
0: Right. Just because you were... No matter how hard you worked, you weren't going to get good at it, is what you're saying.
1: I wasn't going to get good enough to be successful. Mm -hmm. So, look, the the lesson, to answer your question, is just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you won't suck at it. Right. And if you...
0: Just because you're passionate about playing football doesn't mean you're going to be in the NFL.
1: Welcome to the podcast, right? (laughs) And I actually became passionate about opera two or three years in but the truth is I I didn't have the chops mm-hmm. or the discipline um, or the drive I had enough passion to make me think I did for a while but look you're in charge of your passion yeah and and whenever people hear me talk about this I always get a lot of grief because they're saying I'm never going to abandon my passion and I'm like I, I would never suggest you do I'm just saying don't follow it take it with you wherever you go right but don't be so damn picky about what you apply it to it's kind of like with personal relationships, right? You know, there's there's this idea that's been um, championed by maybe a million films and books that says your happiness in a relationship will happen when you find your soulmate. And so what happens is you you embark on this snipe hunt. Mm. You spend most of your life looking for your soulmate. Right. And during the period of time between your search and maybe you find <laughs> or maybe you don't,
0: In person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com, where their award-winning app, State Farm, lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
0: You know, then where are you? You're supposed to be miserable and unhappy the whole time?
1: Well, you're certainly not going to be as happy as you could be. Mm. And that's the thing that gets drilled into your head. So so there's this narrative that goes on in the world today. I'm generalizing, but in a very, very broad way, if you're happy in your personal relationship, it's because you found your soulmate. And if you're happy in your professional relationship, it's because you found your dream job. And if you're happy in both, it's because you followed your passion. And I think all of that is a big steamy pile of crap. Mm. The happiest people I know were very uncertain for a long time. And their decisions, I saw this on Dirty Jobs over and over, people ultimately wound up in their vocation because they looked around to see where everybody else was going, and they went the other way. Hmm. And then what they were confronted with was, okay, there's an opportunity cleaning septic tanks. It's not my wish fulfillment, but it needs to be done and nobody's doing it. A year later, you're getting good at it. Two years after that, you got three trucks and five employees. Pretty soon. You're passionate about other people's crap because now you've made a pile of money and now you have two homes. And no one else wants to do it. That's right. So you've got job security. Oh. Nothing's going to be outsourced. And you're kind of, I used to say about so many of the guys I met on Dirty Jobs that they're all in on the joke. And, and by that, I just meant, you know, when you meet another professional athlete and you start talking about a training routine. Right, right. You go right to the shorthand. Yeah. You you get it. Yes. You get it. When you talk to a soldier or a marine who's been in action and, and you have too, you you just get right to the part, mm-hmm. right? And so people with dirty jobs, they get it. Right. Whether you're hanging upside down on the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, spot welding, or whether you're just crawling through the sewers of San Francisco, knocking out those rotten bricks and putting in new ones, you get it. Right? And so the idea and the big lesson that came from working with so many of those people for so long was that by and large as a group they were happier than most of my friends hmm. they were better balanced than most of my friends and they had just the kind of um the kind of peace i think that comes from knowing knowing if i call it the uh, it's a wonderful life test Right? Another right. movie you probably don't remember you were born in nineteen eighty three <laughs> but 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 if you're if you're somehow magically pulled out of existence like right now, yeah, right what happens to the world? you know, what happens to the world if poof, I'm gone, you know, and dirty jobs never happened. Is the world gonna spin off its axis? no, right right? you know what you know if poof, an accountant is gone, Poof, you know, it's like so you you tend to measure at least I do anyway. You know, can I, can I do something that's fundamentally going to, to change a thing? Dirty jobbers do. Mm. They, all the plumbers call in sick for a week, party over. Right. All the electricians call out for two days. Game over. Riot. Right? <laughs> right. So, you know, the, it's odd that the jobs that we all depend on most are the most underappreciated in our society. And so the people who do those jobs, they know that they're in on it and by and large it makes them really fun to be around
0: Mm. what was the most surprising uh person you met during the dirty jobs process that really shifted something in you or inspired you in a different way because you've probably seen the same type of stories the same type of people for 10 years doing the show but was there one person that you were like wow something Mm. actually shifted in me where i wasn't just not that you were on autopilot but just like whoa something different here no um
1: there were hundreds. I mean, we did 300, and of the 300 jobs we did, I can tell you, you know, I, I talk a lot about this when companies, you know, how they are. Every now and then, somebody will overpay you to come and stand in front of a bunch <laughs> yeah, of people. And, you know, let me tell you, let me tell you what the problem is. Right? <laughs> so people pay me to do that, and um, and and I, just to keep the conversation lively, I I try and mix up the answers a bit, but all of my answers come back. To what the what the Greeks called a um, a peripatia, and a peripatia is a form of an anagnoresis. and an anagnoresis is the Greek word for a discovery. So Aristotle, mm-hmm. Aristotle said the 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 definition of a tragedy was the moment when the protagonist comes face to face with his true self. Right, and I love that. Sure. So for me, Dirty Jobs was a tragedy. Because going all the way back, hey, Freddie, what, what are you growling at? Come here. <laughs> this is my dog, by the way. I didn't properly introduce you. She's just growling at Tiffany. Tip
0: got close. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: This is bring your dog to work day. It's You're going to be a good boy or what? Come on, don't be an asshole. We talked about this. Harass me in front of everybody. <laughs> so good. Here we it's go. Fine. Um, the uh, the idea that an anagnoresis or a discovery can drive the narrative forward is classic. But the idea that a peripatia which is a discovery that fundamentally changes the direction of the narrative. Mm-hmm. That's what I love. So like, you know, when, when, when Bruce Willis realizes, uh, in the beginning of the sixth sense,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you saw the sixth sense. Yes, I did. Okay, great. <laughs> Cause that came out after 1983. Um, you know, he has an anagnoresis in the beginning of that, that, uh, that film when he meets little Cole and Cole, is crazy because Cole thinks he sees dead people. Mm. And over the course of the movie, Bruce makes more discoveries about Cole. And eventually, toward the end, he makes a big discovery. He has a parapetia when he realizes this kid is not crazy at all and he really can see dead people. Mm. Why? Because he's dead. Right. Right? And so when that happens, the entire narrative changes. So that's a long answer to your question. But for me, I had parapetias doing dirty jobs one after the next, really, oh my God, wow, so, for instance, um, I talked about this years ago at one of those uh, TED talks, yeah, right, but it was like i've I've always deferred to the primacy of experts. we're taught right the there's an expert opinion on everything, yes, and getting that expert opinion. Uh, as a host on the Discovery Channel, was always important because Discovery was dedicated to making sure all the facts that went out were correct. Mm-hmm. And because Dirty Jobs was what it was, I was constantly getting angry emails from a whole army of acronyms, from, from, from EPA to OSHA to SPCA. <laughs> like Everyone, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they would all see something on the screen. And they would, and they would freak out. Mm. And uh, and is is my dog growling? Can (laughs) Can you actually hear? hear. What's the matter? Come here, Bud. Come here. Scared or something? Come here.
3: What are you all freaked out about? Why are you freaked out?
1: (laughs) Freaking out, Tiffany. Why are you freaked out? She's been here the whole time. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) hysterical! What's the matter? Moving around too much, probably. Who knows? Hey, hey, you can chill out. All right. You know what? I got it, Tiffany. Hand me that blue box over there. Give a treat or something? No, it's not a treat. <laughs> this is a thing that makes a very high-pitched noise oh, all the dogs here. You see this? You know what this does, right? Look at the box. Come on, don't be an asshole. It's a good boy. Uh... <laughs> so we go to castrate lambs mm. in Craig, Colorado. And I call, I call the SPCA and I call the Humane Society and I say, look, we're going to be castrating lambs on the show. I want to make sure we do it right because the oh. last time we uh, don't want to
0: offend anyone, yeah. I
1: don't want to offend anyone, and they were all upset because a couple months earlier I'd gone to a ranch in, uh, uh, outside of Houston and collected the semen from a bull called Hunsucker Commando and uh, artificially inseminated a bunch of cows. Mm-hmm. And apparently it was great TV, but they were like, no, nah, no, nah, you're doing it all wrong. So I called and said, how are we going to do this right? And they said the right way to do it is you take a rubber band and you put it around the testicles of the sheep. Huh. And over the course of a couple of days, the testicles fall off.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: And I'm like, all right, well, that sounds. What it's it'll be interesting TV. So we go there to do the job <laughs> you have a time lapse for two days. <laughs> see well, I, I I don't know what we're gonna do, right? right? Because I never did on dirty jobs. We, we we always showed up. Um, you know, there was no pre production. There was no mm, plan. There really? was no yeah. There was no there was no second Let's take. See what happens? Yeah. Right. I mean, it was a very very honest show. And 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 the rancher who's a guy named Albert um and he and his wife Melody they they brought the the first lamb out and they put him up on the on the fence post and um Albert reaches in his pocket and pulls out one of those rubber bands you know like the humane society told me <laughs> except it's not a rubber band it's a it's a switchblade oh man and he pops it open and he leans down <laughs> and he and he grabs the scrotum and he pulls the scrotum towards him and he clips off the tip of the scrotum and then he pushes the scrotum back, exposing both testicles, uh-huh. which look like thumbs on a little lamb. And then he bends down and he bites him off.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And then he spits him in a bucket I'm holding. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing, <laughs> dude? Are you this? What happened? My little show what just turned into band? a. Yeah, it's like now it's suddenly a German porno or something. <laughs> like, what are you doing? So I say, I say, cut, cut, stop. You know, which I never say on, on dirty wow. jobs. And I And I said, Albert, look, I get it. You've watched the show. You want to be sensational. You want to do something that's going to be all great for reality TV. You don't have to do that on this show. And he's like, "I don't know what you're talking about. I've been I've been ranching for four generations. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. This is how we've always done it." And I'm like, I, "Okay, look, I don't know what kind of operation you're running here, but you're freaking me out. Can we just please do it the way the Humane Society does?" And he says, "Well, it's not very uh, it's, it's not very nice." I'm like not very nice. You just bit the balls off a sheep, dude. Come on, man. Let's just do it right. So so we start filming again and Albert goes to like this tackle box and he comes back with these bands and and his wife puts a little lamb up and Albert puts the band over and they put the lamb down. And now the lamb is just, you know, trembling. And oh. this this poor creature walks off into the corner of the pen and just kind of sits down and I'm looking oh. at it and I'm like, "Jesus, how the pain?" Like how long? How long is he going to be like this? He said about two days. Oh my gosh! Meanwhile, the one he had just orally
0: violated—it's <laughs> fine. It's walking around, <laughs>
1: looking around, yeah. no blood. What? Wow. Not a care in the world. Back with his mom, and they're like trotting off over the Rockies to pursue a life of religious lamb fulfillment <laughs> or whatever they do. And I'm just like, you know, something—it mm. was one of those parapetias where it, where, it, where it actually clicks in your in your head, and and the lesson on that day was beware of experts. You know, just beware of the idea that one size fits all. The, it looks so much kinder, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was the day I started writing down. I mean, I, I always kept a journal, but the, that was where lessons from the dirt Mm. Really began to originate, and and I and and the, like I said, there there were hundreds of
0: them. Every time there was something new. How would how would you prepare yourself for the show? Then would you just show up as an open vessel? Would you do a ritual, a routine? What would you do?
1: You know, I had worked 15 years uh, impersonating a show host uh, prior to Dirty Jobs, as well as a journalist. I had had a lot of different jobs. I was a, an inveterate freelancer committed to impersonating successful people Mm -hmm. on TV. As you know, as an actor, as, as an actor and as a host. Yes. The reason most TV sucks is because (laughs) it's the same reason most music sucks. And it's the same reason most commercials don't work. Um, Everything is focus grouped, right? Mm -hmm. And when you focus group a thing, um, you eliminate really bad ideas and really good ideas, and what you're left with is that soft, squishy crap in the yeah. middle. That's just how that's just how it works. Right. And so when when dirty jobs, no one's be, taking a risk, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, really, yeah that that is what I'm saying because the if you if you green light if you're an executive at a network and and you green light uh, an idea um, that is similar to American Idol or The X Factor, or America's Got Talent, Mm -hmm. and it fails, a big, expensive, shiny failure based on those successful ideas, you're not going to get fired. And you're not going to get fired because, well, look, who knew? It worked there, 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 and there. Right. You can't blame me for going crazy. Now, Dirty Jobs, I needed somebody to take a risk with me on Dirty Jobs because there was nothing on TV that looked like it at all. This is. There was
0: no swamp people or whatever you know all these all
3: All that
1: stuff.
0: stuff, Duck Dynasty shows, you know,
1: that all came out of Dirty Jobs. Yeah, you know, there were thirty two shows that came out of Dirty Jobs, and and in in two thousand three when we when we shot the first couple hours, there really truly was nothing to look at on TV. So it it was it was utterly non derivative, Hmm. and and I give huge credit to a couple of individuals over at the discovery network who, who really pushed that thing up the hill yeah, and just said, look, that at base, what Mike is doing on the show is satisfying curiosity, which is our mandate at discovery, but he's doing it in a way that is very unusual and very, very transparent and, and we like it. Mm. And a lot of people didn't, um, And so ultimately, to your point, the people who took the risk on the show inspired me to make sure, you know, because the show didn't look like other shows, I didn't want to look like another host. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I completely uh, disassociated myself from the host model. Sure. So there was no ritual. As a host, it's nothing but ritual. You stay up the night before, you get smart on the topic. You have to. Mm-hmm. You've got to Google me. You've got to read up on me. Otherwise, right. you know, right? You you have to do something. Yeah. And I had become very facile over the years huh. in in creating the illusion of competence, but that's all it was. I used to call it the um, I used to call it the plaque approach, not the stuff in your veins or on your teeth, <laughs> but literally a plaque on a statue. Right. So I used to host all kinds of shows where, you know, we were pulling stuff out of our butt constantly. <laughs> and I'd walk up to the statue of Francis Scott Key and uh, I would and I would read the plaque
0: two sentences and or five or whatever. Uh, yeah. But I'd
1: I'd get it in my in my short term memory. And then I'd mm-hmm. turn around to the camera and I'd say, Francis Scott Key, born in eighteen, Right. And so people would be like, oh, well, that Mike or, he knows he, everything. Mike doesn't know shit. <laughs> he, you know, he knows how to read a plaque. Yeah. Yeah. And so. All of the all of the ritualistic stuff from the hair, right? I mean, from hair and makeup, mm-hmm. craft services, wardrobe, every single thing went out the window. You didn't have any of that. Put on your cap. That's it. Shirt, jeans. That's it. And I would put on a cap, and the first thing I'd say to the wherever I was, you know, like at that ranch farm, I said, do you have a cap? You have a business, right? Yeah. I said, I'd be happy to wear it. Mm-hmm. You know, Five million people are going to watch the show. So it was, you know, that's the reason I started wearing caps and also hmm. just because, why not? You don't yeah. have to worry about what your hair looks like. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, but really, was what happened was every single convention of traditional hosting went out the window. And what I was left with was the realization that I'm not, I'm not a host or an expert. I'm a guest. Hmm. I'm, a, um, I'm an avatar for the viewer and it's it's funny when you when you set the table just a little differently, how all your subsequent decisions will become informed by that right. so imagine the same question you just asked me, knowing that I was a guest. It would never occur to you to say well, how do you prepare yourself as a guest? Mm-hmm. Well, you know bring some wine right, show yeah. up on time, right. Don't use your host razor. Don't
0: flirt with his wife. Just, sure. just be a good guest, be a good person. Yeah. <laughs> hey, don't be an asshole, right? So, so it's actually a pretty easy process for you. Then, just be curious and be nice and be
1: curious friendly. and don't be an asshole. Mm. And and most importantly, try. My yeah. job, ultimately, on dirty jobs, you had
0: to taste everything on the plate. Essentially, that's right. You
1: had to be curious enough to try a bite. You try everything. People always ask me, you know, was there a job you were not willing to do? And, uh, did you bite the the nuts off a lamb? Would of course, a uh, hundred times over. That's all we did. A hundred times. Lamb. Oh yeah, biting nuts off. Well, there were hundreds of sheep. Oh my god. So, so technically, you're talking if there were 200 sheep, there would have been 400 testicles. If I'm doing the math <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so you had 400 testicles in your mouth. Well, not at once. I mean, come on. I'm just. See <laughs> the. I already got the job. But, you know, I already, so, um, wow. So, was there a job that you were unwilling to do?
1: The only jobs that I passed on were ones that I knew the network wouldn't allow us to air. Um, and Like? Well, a body farm technician. So you take a cadaver and you put it in the trunk of an old Pinto. Yeah. And you drive the old Pinto into the Atchafalaya swamp. And two weeks later, you haul out the Pinto and you take out the body and you do stuff to it. Yeah. And now you know what a body looks like that's been in the trunk of a Pinto in the Echafalaya Swamp for two weeks. You know that's a job. It's CSI type stuff. And um, wow. while it's an important job and certainly a dirty one, there's very little opportunity for humor in it. Yeah. And it was important to me on the show. It's too heavy. I, I just wanted, like my experience growing up, whether it was factories or construction sites or fish boats or wherever, was there's great humor
0: yeah.
1: in hard labor. And there's great humor in, in entrepreneurship too, which I know is important to you and I It's important to me, too, to say that a lot of people who watch Dirty Jobs looked at it and saw a a straight-up homage to uh, blue-collar work. And while it was that, it was also a love letter to entrepreneurship. Mm.
2: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.
0: So a lot of entrepreneurs were built from dirty jobs who did the dirty work and they started it themselves. I'd say
1: that 40, right? 40 or 50 of the people that we featured on that show were multimillionaires. Mm. You'd never know they
0: it. They owned the farms. They owned the the businesses. They were yeah. doing
1: it, yeah. Yeah, they were just covered in many cases with other people's crap. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we don't associate success in this country with, with that particular uh, optic. Right. Right, and so there was a lot about dirty jobs that was... Really, very, very entrepreneurial in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of got lost in the in the visual. I mean, like
0: one eight hundred got junk is probably a, a
1: billion dollar company,
0: right? Huge, yeah.
1: all around junk. So, sure. yeah, absolutely. Wow.
0: So, you know, I
1: for me, we can talk about lessons from the dirt for for hours and hours and hours. But the big one on a very personal level was once I once I got rid of the paradigm of a host or an expert. And really committed to being a guest in people's places of work mm-hmm. and an apprentice. That's probably the best. You know, I was a, it was, for me, it was Groundhog's Day in a sewer for 300, <laughs> you know, for nine seasons. I was sure. an apprentice. Every day was the first day of, of work. You had to be
0: coachable. Me. You had to be a student at the game.
1: You had to be a good sport. You had to yeah. try everything. And, and what I realized by the end of season one was the, actually, as my, my mother called me, uh, after watching an episode, she said, Michael, watching you is almost identical to watching... Watching you and these people on your show is like watching you and your father when you were young and like watching your father and your grandfather to this day, hmm. right? Because they, my dad was always worked as my grandfather's apprentice and yeah. I always wanted to, to help in that same basic way. Right. And so... You know, I, I don't know how much psychology was at work, but it's kind of interesting when I look back at that show and realize that going back to when I'm seventeen and flunking out of shop and mm. getting a different toolbox, now I get the toolbox, right? And uh-huh. now flash forward. Now I'm now I'm forty five at season one of Dirty Jobs. And what am I doing on that show? Well, I'm singing. I'm hosting, I'm writing, I'm producing, wow. I'm directing. I got a different toolbox and I used them as best I could. And ultimately the only project w- that gave me any celebrity at all was the project that turned in to an homage to my granddad. <laughs> so, you know, Hakuna Matata, right? right? circle right. of life and everything <laughs> yeah. else. It's, 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 it's always a kick, you know, to catch a, glimpse of yourself in a mirror and and see the men from whence
0: you yeah, came. Yeah. It's interesting you said that because it sounds like you've learned a lot of skills over the years, and it wasn't until you are 45 where you just started to hit your stride into this profession of bringing it all together to one skill, I guess. And I think there's a lot of people listening who are in their early to late 20s or early 30s that feel like I should have the results now. I should know what I'm supposed to be doing now. But this just might be one of the tools you're learning for these two-year span. Yeah, That's going to be the thing when you're 40 that's going to take it off. Yeah, And I see that over and over for a lot of people I interview. Robert Greene, do you know that author? What write? He wrote 48 Laws of Power. Um, he wrote uh, Mastery, a book called Mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think The uh, the Art of Seduction. Yeah, He's sold millions of copies of his books. And they've taken off. But he said he started as a uh, a journalist originally in his 20s. Then he was a screenwriter. Then he tried to write fiction books. And then he tried to do TV work. And he said he was good at all of them, but none of them were the thing. But they all added up to like these obscure, interesting books that he writes now yeah. that have taken off his career. Right. But he's like, he needed each of those five-year windows to learn a trade and to be able to apply it to what he's doing now. Yeah. It's great when a plan comes
1: together. But it sounds like he's saying there was no guarantee that the plan was going to come together. And of course, of course, there's not, you know, ever. All all you can do is um, what makes the most sense Mm -hmm. to you. You know, people want to feel congruent. Yeah. You know, and there's and there's so many times in our life when we don't. And the the question I always have is, well, when you don't feel congruent, are you going to panic or not? And nothing good ever comes from panicking. Sure. But lots of good comes from changing and mm-hmm. mixing things up, which goes back to, you know, if you have a list of things you're willing to do, that means you also have a list of things you're unwilling to do. Right. And if one of the things that are actually going to get you where you want to go happens to be on your unwilling to do list, you know. Hey, you should be willing to do it then. Yeah. Assuming it's legal and right. and no one's going to get hurt. Yeah. Uh, so... I think, you know, what's interesting about Green and what's interesting about Covey and what's interesting about Tony Robbins Uh and, you know, a lot of really, really smart people have offered a lot of really cogent blueprints. And some of them are different. Some of them are similar. For myself, I I value them only because the thing that I'm enamored of is the reverse commute. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's the dirty jobs. Yeah. You know, everybody's going this way. I'll go this way. Right now, if everybody reads Tony Robbins' book, or Robert Greene's book, yeah. or Stephen Covey's book, if everybody goes around completely mastering the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm-hmm. then everybody's going to be going this way. Right. And 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 that, to me, is a good thing because what I need to be able to do to satisfy my own romantic version of myself and to act in a way that makes me feel congruent i need to affirmatively go the other way mm. and so i can't affirmatively go the other way until i understand where most people are going sure so look this is a form of hubris really mm. and arrogance and <laughs> right. and i i know it <clears throat> you know look a lot of people expect people say this to me all the time why don't you have a german shepherd why don't you have a big golden labrador retriever why do you have this 14 pound, Scruffy you know, looking. nightmare of a, you know, half terrier, half uh, <laughs> asshole? You know, why? And, and, and the answer is because I know I'm supposed to have the big chocolate mm-hmm. lab, Yeah. And so I don't want to have that. It's
0: so funny you say that because I, I kind of try to live my life a little bit that way. So I, I guess I've been following in your footsteps as a, <laughs> as the jock football player. Yeah, I yeah. was like, I'm not going to drink and go to the parties because I don't want to be associated as that guy. You don't want to be a stereotype. I don't want to be a stereotype. I was like, I'm going to learn salsa dancing. I sang in the choir in high school. I did the musical. I was like, I'm going to do everything that people think you're not supposed to do.
1: That's right. Look, to be – and again – it's this is the trick about advice too because the minute you start to say it like it's wisdom right then the minute you're assuming that would work for me will work for you right, right. and I truly have no idea mm-hmm. you know everybody gets to figure out their own you know little mystical azimuth sure, you know, sure yeah. there, 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 there are a lot of ways to get, to get at it but I'm still fascinated when I look back like QVC. Was the first job I ever had? And how old were you in TV? I was. Um, it was right out of the opera, so I was twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. I was twenty-seven when I actually crashed another audition.
0: Yes, got hired at this, QVC. Yeah, and so and I heard I heard this because you told it in your recent episode of your podcast. Oh, to Tim with uh, with uh, Ferris. No, or, on, or, your, on, on my your podcast. Answer. Yes, uh, you were talking about selling a pencil. Yeah, in your audition. Yeah and you made me want to buy your ad was so good you made me want to buy the the pen for whatever the pen thing is I was the, red mark to, pen the red company. mark pen company with the cap and the yeah exactly so i'm going to get your pen now well, well thank you <laughs> cuz
1: the money goes to the microworks foundation
0: which exactly. is kind of a nice thing
1: <laughs> but i Sorry, think go ahead. Yeah. well the point i wanted to make was uh, i i didn't talk about qvc i was fired 3 times and from 1993 to 1997 I left in 93, and and from the rest of the 90s, I freelanced in entertainment, mm-hmm. and I really didn't talk about QVC at all, because when I look back at it, I really did see it as kind of this this thing I had to do, right? It was just like, oh my God, what a hot mess that that time was. But the more time went by, the more I realized how important those three years were selling stuff I couldn't describe or understand. Or in care the, about, probably. In the middle of the night, right? I mean, it was just... It was so amazingly valuable Mm. and and the reason that i was um the reason people liked me on qvc and the reason i had such a reputation for being a uh uh, 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 an anarchist wasn't because i was crazy it's just because i was a little different than everybody else around me so you're unique Yes, I was unique, right? And so you turn on QVC right now or eight hours from now and the person there is going to be doing the the same exact thing that the person before them was doing and the person after them is going to do.
0: Same tone, same body language.
1: The graphics look the same. Yes. Every single thing looks the same. And so I was, to be just a little different, made me outrageous. Yes. Same thing on Discovery, right? In 19 or 2001, Discovery was still the province of experts and hosts, right? So to come on there as a guest, instead that 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 was that was radical. The point is when I when I when I looked at QVC and for a while when I looked at Discovery, I used to I I used to curse their uh, <laughs> the the provincialness of it, you know, and I, I used to say ah they're they're so rigid and they have such unforgiving rules, right? But the truth is, you need those. Yes. Because you can't... The structure. You can't put your foot over the line if you don't know where the line is. Yeah. And so the best thing anybody ever did for me in my career was to give me rules and yes. tell me, you must not you must not break them. And I didn't go out there to, to shatter them by any stretch, but knowing they're there allows you... play with them a little, right? A step on the line a little bit. Just a little bit. It's really, really important. And, and that, you know, to the extent I have any maturity at all, <laughs> um, that's, that's one of the things, one of the, one, mm. one of the big lessons. You know, when people put you in a box, uh, it, it, it can be very useful. Conversely, what any writer will tell you, the most horrifying sight in the world is the blank page. Mm-hmm. You know when there when there are no when you can write anything you want when you can say anything you want when you can order anything you want. There's no starting
0: point. It's just like come up with something. That's it. Yeah, It's challenging. You, you can. But when there are rules and when there's a uh, parameters, then you can create within the rules, right? Or 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 choices too. Right? Yeah, choices. Yeah,
1: options. Yeah, that's right. What well, I don't know about you. I love to eat, and there's not a single food. There's, both. <laughs> there's not a single food, with the possible exception of the lamb testicles we spoke of, uh, that, I, that I don't affirmatively enjoy. When I go into a restaurant wow. and somebody hands me a menu that looks like a copy of War and Peace, right? I, I panic a little bit. Sure. Because there's nothing in there I don't want. But now suddenly you've just handed me homework. And I'm I'm going through. Oh my! You get really three pages
0: of appetizers. No, really. Just tell me the top three options, and I'll choose from those three.
1: And, and and to this day, I I don't look at menus. Wow! I say, what's what is the chef loving? What's fresh? There's not a thing I don't like. That's impressive. And and I've had, that has so I mean, and I eat out 300 nights a year. Yeah. It has radically changed <laughs> my experience in restaurants. Sure. Do not look at the menu. Well, what do you recommend? That's good. I, and I've, I've really, I've, I've never been disappointed.
0: Mm, I love it. I love it. What was, um what's a skill that you think that every human being should focus on the most accumulating and generating? One skill we could all have yeah, oh, man. Look, my
1: my answer is going to sound a little hackneyed. No, I mean, because look, there's
0: there 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 are no
1: new ideas, right? <laughs> you know, it's 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 all been done and said. Uh, but two ears, one mouth. In proportion, if everybody listened twice as much as mm-hmm. they spoke, um, I I just have to think it. It'd be a lot less noisy. Yeah. And absolutely. And if you knew that you only got to say half of what you normally say, you'd probably be a bit more circumspect Mm -hmm. about what comes out of your head. So, you know, I, it's just, that's just math. Mm -hmm. Two ears, one mouth. Yeah. You know, simple. When in doubt,
0: shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Um, I watched the, uh, I believe it was a keynote speech you gave at, Skills USA 2013 on YouTube could be, and there was a poster that you showed the audience. You turned around. That was from your, I believe, senior year in high school counselor. Yeah, uh, guidance counselor in his room. Yeah, and uh, the poster said, "Work smart, not hard." Correct. Correct. With a capital not. Yeah, and you said this was the the worst piece of advice, or the worst thing, or something along those lines. Like this is the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sentence w- you've ever seen or th-
1: idea. Yeah, I'll stand by it. I well, think so.
0: Why why? And then what did you do afterwards? Well
1: if you remember. Oh, I remember vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the parapetillas we were talking about mm-hmm. from Dirty Jobs, you know the, the big the big granddaddy of all of them was this idea that um well when the economy crashed in two thousand nine and the headlines all said, I mean, every single day, you know, 9%, 10%, 11% unemployment. Yeah. All we heard about were the number of people who couldn't find work. All I saw on Dirty Jobs was Help Wanted signs. Everywhere I went, Really? people were struggling to huh. hire. And it just made me think
0: that, you know. But people with jobs or without jobs weren't willing to go do those jobs if they had degrees or if they had... Uh, was beneath them or whatever right?
1: I, I wasn't prepared at that point to, to say what the problem was. All I knew for sure was that there were two narratives going on in the country, yes. and one was getting a lot of press and one wasn't getting any. You had 2.3 million jobs in 2009 that employers couldn't fill, and you had nearly 20 million people who were unemployed. Hmm. So what's going on? And I used to talk I used to ask that question. To every employer I met in all 50 states, multiple times, and the answer was always the same thing: we simply can't. We simply can't find people who are willing to learn a skill that's in demand. Hit the the reset button, retool, retrain, and most importantly, relocate. Mm. I don't know when we became such a sedentary people, right? I mean, we, the United States, is the United States, because we went west. Right. We move. We stop moving. And a lot of people today, in my opinion, are not only expecting a job after college, they're expecting a job that pays them what they believe is fair, and they're expecting a job that exists uh, in their zip code.
0: Mm, and they are entitled. They're, they feel entitled,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they I, Well, look, again, probably in some cases, I, I think the millennials are an easy target, and I don't want to pile on. Yes, so I, right. I don't know if they're in all general, entitled or not. In general, yes. I just know that there is an expectation. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very long answer to your question, but one day I was talking to a guy named uh, Dave Morales, who um, he has a, he had a ranch in Congress, Congress, Arizona. And he was on the verge of going bankrupt. And Dave realized that he had many thousands of giant saguaro cacti on his property. So he got into the landscaping business and yeah. started selling his cactus all over the country. And after a gut wrenching day with Dave transplanting a, a three ton cactus, we had this conversation and we, we started talking about the worst advice in the world. And we were laughing about it and laughing about it. And, um, I think he was the guy who reminded me of work smart, not hard. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me of Mr. Dunbar, my high school guidance counselor and Mr. Dunbar in 1979 Called me down to his office to talk about my future, and he said, "Uh, you know, your your, your scores are pretty good, and University of Maryland, uh, James Madison, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a couple of schools would be great for you." And she I grew said, up in Baltimore, right? Yeah, grew up in Baltimore, yeah. and I said, "Mr. Dunbar, I a I don't have any money. <laughs> B, expensive. the only the only four letter word in in my family is debt. Mm. There can be none." It's simply mm-hmm. not. It's simply not tolerated. Yeah, we'd rather live in a tent and eat beans than borrow money. Mm. And and finally, I, I don't know what I want to do. So why do, why take on the debt? Why go to this? I, I, I want to go to a community college and I want to take as many inexpensive courses as I can to get a better sense of what you want. Right. Yeah. Get a better toolbox. Right. Yep. He says, Mike, that's a terrible idea. It's way beneath your potential. And then he pointed to the poster that you were talking about. And on the poster was a picture of a guy in a cap and gown holding his uh, diploma very proudly. And next to him is a guy who looks like uh, every mechanic you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Grease monkey holding a wrench, looking down at the ground like some sort of vocational (sighs) consolation prize. (laughs) And the caption caption on this poster said, work smart, not hard. Uh. So Mr. Dunbar is basically saying the diploma is going to allow you to work smart the wrench will doom you to a life of hard work and knowing what i've told you about my grandfather and knowing you know what you know about me at this point you can imagine i'm like you, you're you're completely relegating a man like my grandfather who can build a house without a blueprint yeah into a guy who's going to be doomed right to a life of poor
0: of broke drudgery yeah 15 hour work days yeah yeah and
1: i just thought you know at the time it i was offended as much as a 17 year old kid can be offended i just like ah oh, what a stupid thing to say i yeah. i don't buy that later i got i got more offended and today i use that moment and that poster as an example of of the worst advice in the world hmm. because i think i think we took it as a as a people and people say you know work smarter not harder google it you'll see yeah. Thousands of pages. That expression has become a platitude. The platitude becomes bromide. The bromide becomes conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom now becomes this neat, pat little expression. that People say, look, we just made hard work the the thing to affirmatively avoid in favor of efficiency. Mm -hmm. So why in the world would you promote efficiency or effectiveness at the expense of hard work? Both of them are very important. Yeah. But so I, I, I began to ask the question, well, what, what would happen if an entire country took the advice that working smart instead of working hard mm-hmm. um, really is the epitome of wisdom? And in my opinion, uh, we'd be precisely where we are right now. We'd have $1.3 trillion in student loans. We'd have thousands of college graduates who can't find work in their chosen field. We'd have nearly 40 million men right now, as we speak, who are between the ages of 18 and 54 who are not in the workforce. 40 million? 40 million. I'm not talking about unemployed people. Unemployed, that's a that's a much smaller number. Those refer to people who are affirmatively looking for jobs but haven't found one people who are capable of working but have taken themselves out of the workforce, that's a much larger number. And that's a much scarier number. 5.9 million available jobs right now, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and the Department of Labor, 70% of which don't require a four-year degree. (laughs) So why are we lending money we don't have to kids who will never be able to pay it back to train them for jobs that don't exist anymore? We're doing it in part because we believe that hard work is the enemy and that smart work is the only way forward. And we believe that the key to working smart is to becoming smart. And we believe that the key to becoming Mm -hmm. smart is a four-year degree. And we know that the key to a four-year degree is borrowing as much money as necessary to allow the universities to charge Mm -hmm. whatever they can charge in this very competitive environment. And so it goes. That's why you have millions of available jobs that are important but don't require a four-year degree that are going unfilled.
0: Now, if you enjoyed this, make sure to stick around for part two because we just got started. In this episode, we learned a ton, but in part two, we break down if you can have a fulfilled life without having to work hard. How to build a big audience without inflating your ego and what Mike's done to build his audience. Mike's views on masculinity today versus what it used to mean, especially with the working class. The truth about whether Mike has been considered for vice president and so much more coming up in part two. Make sure to tune in because the next episode is going to be hot. And if you enjoyed this one, make sure to share it out with your friends. lewishousecom slash four zero three. All the show notes and the full video interview of both parts is back at lewishouse.com 403. So you can watch the full video interview and check out the dog who makes an appearance as well.
2: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
0: Share this with your friends, guys. Post it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Tag Mike as well. He's all over the place. You can connect with him more and make sure to check out all the information about what he is up to, his podcast, back at the show notes at lewishouse.com slash four zero three i'm super pumped for you guys to listen to part two so if this is your first time here at the school of greatness make sure to subscribe over on itunes and stick around for part two coming next until then you know what time it is it's time to go out there and do something great